The reading this morning is Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of all this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're looking at uh, Athens. I suppose we might even... You know, transport our minds to think a Greek island, COVID-free, would be a nice place to go. But don't don't get distracted for too long. So we're at Athens. We're with Paul, and he is providing us an example of how 
we communicate, explain the Christian worldview to those who are like us from a non-Jewish background. Now it's true that Paul did do at Athens exactly what he'd done at Thessalonica and Berea and elsewhere, which was to go to the synagogue first of all, where he would have reasoned with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. This was his usual way of working. As we saw last week, he was explaining this is that. Actually, in boxing up one day this week my ridiculously large number of books, I found one which had sort of hidden behind loads of others that I hadn't seen for years, really. It was precisely on, it was called This Is That. It was by Professor F.F. Bruce, who was one time a member of the Open Brethren and a professor of biblical studies at Manchester University. And that was what the Old Testament said about the Messiah who was coming. And this is what Jesus said and did. And as we saw last week, there is a match between the two. What the Old Testament predicted was what the New Testament would record that Jesus was in fact the long-expected Messiah. He did precisely what was expected. So, um, I've been a bit busy this week, so there are no pictures, but just try and imagine Athens as I try and describe it to you. It, it, the ancient city is on a hill, and that hill is called the Acropolis. And on top of that hill is the thing called the Parthenon, which is still there today and which you could see from 40 miles away, whether you approach it by land and sea. And in a lower part of the Acropolis, there's a thing called the Agora, and that's the marketplace. It's the place where business was, contra- was yes, contracted. And um, people would also sit around drinking and eating in the kind of uh, you know, covered bars that were there. It was a place for natural, informal human discussion. And there's a third A, the Areopagus, literally the Mount of Aris. It's a lump of rock a bit lower down. It was northwest of the Acropolis. And there was where the kind of uh, the ruling elders, the court, if you like, of the city would decide on matters, including religious ones. It was on what is called, what was called by the Romans, Mars Hill. Today, it's just a lump of rock. I've preached there, as well as the Apostle Paul, to an audience of one, silently. Cathy was the audience, and we were just filling time before we caught a plane back to the UK, after I had introduced her to the joys of dinghy sailing, which she didn't like. Um, but she was a very quick learner. I mean, the, the how, to, how to write a capsized laser pico was scheduled for the second afternoon, She had cause to learn how to do it on the first afternoon. So um, the um, Acropolis, the big hill in Athens, the Agora, the marketplace, and the Areopagus, a rocky crop where the city elders met. So as well as reasoning in the Jewish synagogue, he ventured out to the Agora to join in the chat with, we read verse 17, those who happen to be there. Now, a few preliminaries before we look at this masterclass, this model of Paul's on how we too can 
think about how we might communicate to those around us today. Let's look first of all at what he saw, then what he felt, then learn a little bit about who he's speaking to before we actually look at what he said. So what did he see? Well, verse 16, it was a city full of idols. There, was innu- there were innumerable, and there still are, you know, Athens, the Acropolis, is full of junk. That's what archaeology is, really. Temples, shrines, statues, altars to the gods. Gods of Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, he's the booze god. Neptune, you know what he'd be the god of, and Diana. And they're made of stone, bronze, gold, ivory, marble, silver. They were and are incredibly beautiful. We have quite a few of them in the British Museum because the Greeks may not have looked after them quite as well as we, of course, do, Um, including the Elgin marbles, really. So um, it was a tragedy for Paul to see that these people's God-given creativity was, in effect, prostituted. Their talent was not used to glorify the real God in heaven. And how did he feel about that? Well, we read he was greatly distressed. He was jealous that the one true God was not being honoured there, that the real creator of the universe was not given the credit that he deserved. So what did he do? Well, it's time for a chat to them. And he reasoned with them, he discussed, explained, debated, argued and persuaded with them. He didn't wait to be asked. He could see that these guys were aware of the supernatural, but they had created a supernatural that they could reduce to size, which enabled them to control it. It was a domesticated divinity at best. Well, who's he talking to in the Agora? Well, it's clear that um, among them there were two groups. One group are called Epicureans and another are called Stoics. And uh, they were very quick, verse 18, to dispute with him. But they seem to have misunderstood him because we read in verse 18 that uh, they thought Paul had been talking about two foreign gods, one Jesus and the other one Anastasia because the Greek word for resurrection is Anastasia, which is also a female name. Well, intrigued, they invite him up the hill to make a presentation to um, uh, those at the Areopagus, the ruling council of the city. And that gathering of people, the great and the good, would have been quite diverse There would have been politicians, magistrates, philosophers, lawyers, and other civic leaders. And we don't know whether this was a formal meeting or an informal one. We don't know whether, as in Rome with the Senate, that the general public are allowed to sit and watch and listen. We don't know how many there were. But we do know the names of two of them. Dionysius, a council member, and Damaris. She was also there. Now, these people are clearly well off. They must have had others generating their income whilst they, verse 21, spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. At this point, 
we need to know something about these two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and what they thought about life. They may have unfamiliar labels to us, but you may well find parallels today with people that you know and think, yeah, aspects of what they thought are exactly what people I know think, even if they don't really realise they think it. So the Epicureans, if you had a kind of subtitle for them, it would be, there's nothing to fear, but also there's nothing to hope for. Epicurus was a Greek philosopher who lived about 300 years before Christ. Ethically, he's what they call a consequentialist, believing good actions are the ones that result in pleasure. So you do everything for your pleasure. That's what drives you. Their moral code allowed everyone to do their own thing, as long as it didn't interfere with the happiness of others. And with this as their basis, people were free to do what they wanted to. As a result of this, their worldview that they held tended to make them detach from the rest of society. They had a reputation for not caring about other people. That's just too much bother. I want to please myself. They believed in gods, but gods who were so remote and uninterested in human beings that they were, in effect, de facto atheists. And death was the end. Nothing followed on from death, so, of course, they would not be held to account for the way in which they lived. Consequently, there was nothing to fear but there was also nothing beyond this life to hope for. Life was a matter of chance, and the aim was to enjoy it while it lasted or until your luck ran out. Now, do you recognise elements of that thinking in people you know or see today? I'd be surprised if you didn't. And then there are the Stoics. Stoicism arose at a similar time, about 300 years before Christ, and it was due to the thinking of Zeno, who lived at the same time, you realise, as Epicurus. Now, Zeno, or Zeno, saw the material world itself as having a soul which determined in a fatalistic way the events of life. God was contained within creation, there was nothing of God outside of creation. So they're pantheists. And their view encouraged people to simply come to terms with the way the world is. Contentment could only be found by taking the world as it comes, accepting the way things were. And this resulted in an emotionally detached rationalism there was no personal God to appeal to. And so what we have with both these groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics, was that they tended, of course, to look down their noses at the superstitious beliefs of the population at large. In modern terms, the Epicureans saw life as a lottery where you take your chances, while the Stoics were fatalists seeing nature as an impersonal force which determines our destinies. The Epicureans 
had their focus on living for pleasure, whereas the Stoics gritted their teeth and accepted their fate. And so there are at least three kind of worldviews going on in Athens that we know about. There is superstition, there is chance, and there is fatalism. And those characteristics pop up in different places all over our world today. So we should find it very useful to see how Paul approached people with this kind of mindset. So what did Paul have to say? Well, first he adopts the conventions of, uh, of Greek society, where if you were a visiting speaker, you would be expected to say complimentary things about the place that you were visiting. Now, Paul had been greatly disturbed by the idolatry that he'd seen, but he picked up on this in a positive way. Instead of attacking them, which would have been easy, he affirms and commends their interest in religion. Verse 22, he says, I see you are very religious, he calls them. Verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now this was a very smart way, wasn't it, to begin with. He's provoked their curiosity and he's underlined what will be his central message, that God in fact has made himself known. What you worship as something unknown, he says, I am going to proclaim or announce to you. I'm going to let you know. And he sets about turning their worldview completely upside down. Verse 24 and 25. The God Paul told them about was not a man-made God who lived in a man-made temple. He did not need our help, protection or service. He is the God who made the entire universe and everyone in it. He's completely self-sufficient he does not need us, but we are completely dependent on him. This would turn their worldview on its head. We did not make him, he made us. He is not just another demigod for the Parthenon of gods, but he is the God of all gods. Not that Paul, of course, thinks these people exist. God of everyone, because he's created everyone. This means that all people in every country have the same origin in creation. But that was contrary to the way in which these Athenians thought. Athens was the historic, intellectual center of the Mediterranean world, and into parts of the Middle Eastern world. They thought that they were superior to everyone else. They had a long history. They may have been a bit on a downer at the time because the Romans were the top dogs at that time, but they had a long, illustrious history of thinkers. You know, they were from the soil of Attica, the peninsula on which Athens is the capital. But Paul's God made every nation from a common ancestry. 
and we read, he determines their time set for them. In other words, their rise and their fall. And the exact places where they should live. Now as a result of saying that, of course, everyone is equal in standing before God, who has no racial favourites. So Paul gets alongside them by identifying with their religiosity, but distancing himself from their conclusions. God made us, not that we might serve him, as if he needed anything, he says. They are right to be religious, but this inner yearning was given for a purpose, that they would seek him, he says, reach out to him and find him. In other words, discover him and come to know him. This is the God of gods, unlike this pantheistic view of the Stoics, he is personal and transcends all that he has created. And yet he is not distant and remote, contrary to the Epicurean view, which held that God was utterly unapproachable, unknowable, disinterested. No, Paul's God is imminent, meaning that he is very close to each of us. And it's interesting and illustrative, that Paul doesn't quote as his source of authority the Old Testament here. He quotes from one of their poets, Epimenides of Crete, who lived 600 BC, who wrote, for in him we live and move and have our being. A Christian truth from a non-Christian source. Every human being is wired up the same way and has access to what we call general revelation, knowledge which, make, knowledge which God has made available to all people wherever they happen to have lived. Then Paul makes his appeal to our divine origins, that we come from God. God does not come from us, nor is he to be found in the, in the material world. And he quotes from another of their poets, verse 28, we are his offspring. Now again, instead of quoting from Genesis 1, as he could have done, he quotes from a Stoic poet, Aratus, who lived around 300 BC. Although for the Greeks, of course, they may have taken it in a pantheistic sense. But Paul uses it as a bridge to link their outlook with his outlook. And he then goes on to confront them with the absurdity that God is a figment of artistic imagination, like the idols that he's seen all around the city. And while the superstitious masses believed, and which the superstitious masses believed, became embodied in the artwork and empowered it, you see, all around the Roman Empire, you would find in people's households little shrines where they had little miniature gods in little miniature temples, and they'd say their daily prayers to these little shrines. You'd find that in Buddhist countries today, like Thailand. 
but the gods are not made by people in human likeness. The creator God made people in his divine likeness. We bear the family resemblance of God. We are his offspring, not the other way around. Their idolatry was because they were ignorant. And Paul calls them now to turn away from such willful foolishness and humble themselves before their creator, who will also one day be their judge, 29 to 31. Now, of course, this is a summary by Luke of what Paul would have said on that day. It's very likely that before he got to judgment that Paul would have expanded on the moral otherness of God revealed in their human consciences and that that God had revealed himself in the righteous person of Jesus whom he has appointed as that judge and assured us of that by raising him from the dead. And it's highly unlikely that Paul would have talked about the resurrection without, of course, talking about the cross first of all to explain how Jesus' sacrifice was to pay the penalty for the sins which their consciences would have condemned them. The idea that God would judge the world in righteousness was altogether novel for these Greeks. The myths surrounding the Greek gods suggest that was hardly a kind and righteous thought among them. They were violent, jealous, greedy, capricious. They inflicted their hatred on one another and they behaved in shocking and appalling ways. There was no integrity, no consistency or justice to be found among them. They sulked and they schemed against each other and they carried out the most spiteful revenge. And this was, of course, because their gods were a projection of themselves into the heavens, in contrast with Paul's God, who was not a human projection into the heavens, but a divine projection to us from the heavens. The revealed God was a loving God, upright, consistent, moral in character, who will call us all to account and judge everyone who's ever lived with absolute justice. And if we want to know what he's like, we have to look at the character of the one that he's appointed to carry out that judgment. And if we want to know where we stand before God, we just have to have a long, hard look into the life and character of Jesus. And the response, well, we don't know how long Paul got to talk for, but uh, during that time he's covered a lot of ground. And I said they, the Epicureans and the Stoics, didn't really believe in the gods at all. They were for the common people. They were just projections of their human nature onto the heavens with little man-made monuments to represent them. Now Paul is called, calling them to face the truth and the living God who created the earth and everything in it and to turn to him in repentance and faith. 
because in due time they will have to face a just and righteous judgment before Christ. This was incredibly radical stuff for them. And quite naturally, some mocked. Some, though, wanted to hear more, and some believed and became Christians that day. Paul, although a Jew, had been brought up in their world, in their culture. He knew how they thought. And he very astutely and sensitively drew on their world to enter it with points of common ground to faithfully proclaim the risen Christ. The results will always be mixed to the message of Christ. People have different starting points. People have different barriers. Some people are quick on the uptake, others less so. But here, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a member of the ruling council, who apparently later became the bishop of Athens, and Damaris, they were converted. Presumably they were known to the people who Luke was writing this Luke Acts to, otherwise why name them? So what we have here is three groups of people. These pantheistic Stoics, these pleasure-seeking Epicureans, and these superstitious populace. And they heard Paul's presentation of the Christian God. And he engaged them by homing in on common ground and yet at the same time profoundly disturbing their worldview. He didn't quote from the Bible because that wouldn't have been A, A, something they'd know and B, something that they would have given authority to. They didn't have access to it. Yet drawing from their own humanity and their own culture, Paul proclaimed God revealed in Christ and the scriptures. And his audience. Some wanted to hear more. Some mocked. Some became Christians. Now that's what we should do. Find the common ground from their world and their experience use it as a bridge, explain the gospel, and the outcome will be much the same. Mockery, curiosity, and conversion. It's wonderful to hear from some of you who've reminded me how you have come to faith over the time that I've been here. Amen.